Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In 1750, Lutheran pastor Heinrich Melchior Muhlenberg of Philadelphia took up his pen in disgust. A bold group of missionaries had made incursions on his congregation, representing themselves as ordinary Lutherans and Calvinists. Contrary to their claims, they were preaching radical theology and persuading colonists to join their communal way of life in nearby Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Muhlenberg could barely believe his eyes after studying their hymnology. This is what he wrote, quote, I ask you to examine the 12th part of their hymns, where you will discover that these obscene birds, with your permission, have compared women's genitalia, vagina of the uterus, with the side of the Savior of the world, which on the cross has been pierced by a spear, end quote. Indeed, these religious radicals, whom British Whig Robert Nugent called enthusiasts and sodomites, were making waves all over the world. So convinced were they of their mission that hundreds of them, all artisan missionaries, men and women, volunteered to relocate in communities all over the world. With the Inuit in Greenland and Labrador, the Mohicans in the Hudson River Valley, with the Hottentots in South Africa, in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, Georgia, the Carolinas, Uh, they lived among enslaved populations in the Caribbean, and in Scandinavia, just to name a few. They stoked rebellion in enslaved Africans in Suriname. They possessed an unhealthy obsession with blood, gore, and the genitals of Jesus Christ. They allowed their women to preach against the Pauline prescriptions, and they indulged in all kinds of wicked behavior. Worst of all to Muhlenberg, people liked them. They demanded no pay. They worked hard. They built schools and churches with their own hands. They improved literacy among the colonists. They achieved full literacy themselves and preached in dozens of languages. Their profusive, emotive style was engaging and attractive to the most ordinary people who encountered them. Who were these religious radicals? They were the Moravians. The Moravian Church still exists today, but bears only a faint resemblance to the Moravians we will encounter in this episode. In the 1770s, a new generation of church leaders were humiliated by the radicalism of their forebears and chastened by the condemnation of their Protestant and Catholic rivals. This new conservative generation of Moravian clergy did what they could to purge their pasts of the legacies of their spiritual experimentations. They reinvented themselves as non-controversial, de-radicalized, pious Protestants, disowning their radical past. Today, we cover the first 300 years, and that's the most radical and fun years, of the 700-year history of the Moravian Church. I'm Marissa. And I'm Averill. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. <laughs> We 
want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, particularly our Augur and Excavator level patrons. A very special thanks to Danielle, Lauren, Christopher, Colin, Maggie, and Peggy. Your generosity will go down in history. See what I did there? Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Moravian history reaches back nearly 700 years. We'll do our best to condense their long and interesting but convoluted history so that we have time to discuss the peculiarities that made them so incredibly radical from what historians call their period of innovation. That's from 1727 to 1760. But first, to understand the Moravian identity, we must go back to England in the 1300s. The Plantagenet Edward the Black Prince was on the throne and the Hundred Years' War with the French Valois had already begun. A northerner from the Yorkshire town of Hipswell had begun to earn notoriety as a staunch critic of the papacy. In fact, the first major reformer of the Roman Catholic Church was this very Englishman named John Wycliffe. He established a following, later called Lollards, in the 1370s. He was the master of Belial College and a rector at Oxford, among other prestigious medieval universities. He criticized the Pope and railed against the increasingly lascivious and materialistic lives of the Catholic clergy. He also believed that scripture was the ultimate Christian authority and that it should be translated into the vernacular for ordinary people to read. Wycliffe was examined by authorities and attacked in writing by the Catholic establishment, but was never arrested or charged with heresy during his lifetime. He died in 1384, but it was not until several years later that the English crown cracked down on Wycliffe's followers, passing the anti-Wycliffe statute of 1401. The statute branded Wycliffe a heretic and made it illegal to possess and circulate his ideas. From this point forward, Lollards were charged with heresy and burned at the stake. This violent crackdown had long-term consequences. It made all executed Lollards martyrs for Wycliffe's cause. Why are they called Lollards? I don't know. <clears throat> I'm sure there's some theological reason why they're called Lollards. Wycliffe's works were circulated secretly in continental Europe for decades, where they stoked the fires of reform. Wycliffeism, or Lollardy as it is now called, found fertile ground in the Slavic kingdom of Bohemia. That's the present-day Czech Republic, or at least part of it. Prague was awarded its own archbishopric in 1344, giving it ecclesiastical independence from Menz, which is um, kind of the capital of the Rhineland-Palatinate area. So remember, Germany's kind of all these different separate principalities and duchies and things, uh, and they kind of get this independence from the big city. Making things even more complicated, the papacy suffered a schism in 1378 that pit Pope Gregory the 12th in Rome against Pope Benedict the 13th in Avignon. The schism split loyalties across the Bohemian kingdom. Still, at the turn of the 15th century, Prague flourished as the foremost cultural and intellectual center in the region. Jan Hus, a Bohemian theologian and dean of Charles University in Prague, was deeply influenced by Wycliffe's ideas. Hus came to prominence in the 14 aughts 
when he began criticizing the papacy for instigating violence in the Levant. He also criticized the church for selling indulgences to finance these crusades. A large majority of the Bohemian faculty working on theology in Prague's universities supported Hus. By 1410, most Bohemians had been converted to loyal Hussites as well. Sensing danger, sympathetic clergy tried to convince the faculty to recant their heretical views. King Wenceslas IV convened a synod in 1412 as an attempt to reconcile the faculty to the church. Hus earned Wenceslas' loyalty because he argued that Bohemia should have all the rights that other states enjoyed. Typically, the church could only condemn adherents with permission from their king as part of its medieval balance of ecclesiastical and secular power. Due to massive support for Hus and rioting in the streets, Wenceslas did not give the church permission to condemn him, but his throne was somewhat insecure, so the church took a gamble and resisted any challenges to their authority, risking Wenceslas's displeasure. In the end, Wenceslas was forced to exile Hus from Prague. While in exile, Hus realized that rural Bohemians were excluded from the development in Prague, and he sought to remedy their exclusion. He wrote the remainder of his theological texts in Czech, um, so they could read it, you know, uh, instead of in Latin. Meanwhile, King Wenceslaus' brother, Sigismund of Hungary, was impatient to put an end to the religious chaos in the kingdom. He convened the Council of Constance, and this lasted from 1414 to 1418, and he promised Hus safe passage, implying that this was another chance to negotiate with church authorities. Hus had done this several times before. On his way to Constance, Hus was imprisoned, and Sigismund was convinced by Catholic prelates that promises to heretics didn't count. Hus was tried and executed for heresy on July 6, 1415. This martyrdom was powerful to the Czechs. They revolted against the papacy, raising troops against the Pope and provoking the church into declaring a crusade against them. Because their movement was equal parts religious and political, the Hussites were just as much soldiers as they were religious fellows. They were persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church for their theological departures. Quote, the Hussites were so constantly under arms and involved in marches and countermarches that one is puzzled to determine where soldiers leave off and refugee begins. Hussites spent the next 18 years repulsing papal forces over the course of five consecutive crusades. Additional sects splintered along cultural and provincial lines. The Eutroquists were centered in Prague and were ascetic and puritanical, while the Taborites were radically and violently martial. They shared the common goal, however, of an independent Bohemia and the establishment of a Hussite church. Hus and his followers thus became early Protestant reformers, as well as the earliest agitators for Czech independence. What in the world does this have to do with Moravians, you ask? As always, it comes back around, I really promise. The Moravians were born from an alliance between three of these Hussite sects that had played both the part of soldier and refugee. The Moravians emerged from three separate communities of Hussites, one seeking refuge in Kunwald, which is in northeastern Bohemia, another group that had found asylum in Klatovi, which is in West Bohemia, and a third group staying in Vitinovici, which is in eastern Bohemia or western Moravia. It kind of um, straddles the two. In 1458, Gregory the Patriarch brought together these three Hussite communities and established the unity of the Czech Brethren. 
They elected their own priests and adhered strictly to the Sermon on the Mount. No oaths, no wealth accumulation. In this, and in many other things, the brethren were very much unlike the Hussites who had come before them. They were militantly pacifist and insisted on widespread education of all, irrespective of class. In 1508, Vladislav II issued the St. James Mandate, which outlawed the brethren. Once again, they became hunted refugees. They continued their diaspora to Moravia, where they stayed from 1509 to 1516. This is where they got their name. In the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation kicked off and the Counter-Reformation, launched by the Catholic Church, clamped down. The Brethren faced alternating periods of persecution and toleration, living mostly on the estates of sympathetic Bohemian and Moravian nobles. This was until the beginning of the Bohemian Revolt in 1618, and this is actually what started the Thirty Years' War. At this point, they were forced to go underground. Brethren, now often called Moravians, lived in tiny dispersed communities in Poland and Moravia for nearly a century. These illegal remnants of the Brethren came to be called the Hidden Seed. (laughs) I just love it. It always has to be sexual with them. It just Mm -hmm. has to be. The Hidden Seed remained just that, hidden, until 1722. This year, a small band of Moravian refugees were offered asylum by Count Niklas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, an Austrian noble with an estate in Upper Lusatia. Lusatia is a region that now spans Germany and Poland. In 1722, this region was part of the Kingdom of Saxony. So what makes everything so complicated here is that territories are switching over to different kingdoms and um, leagues and, you know, all of this stuff constantly during this time. So I'm just trying to, that's the reason why I'm giving all the names and cities because their allegiances are constantly changing. In 1722, Lusatia, it's part of the Kingdom of Saxony, but it had previously been under the authority of the Habsburgs, um, under the Holy Roman Empire, um, the Lusatian League, which was uh, a confederation of five royal cities, and the Kingdom of Bohemia. During the 1400s, the area's rulers were quite conservative, and they actually fought against the Hussites in the Hussite Wars. By the mid-16th century, however, Protestantism was widely espoused by those who lived in the area. After the untimely death of his father when he was a newborn, little Ludwig, as he was called when young, enjoyed a very intimate relationship with his mother until she remarried and went off to live with her new husband, leaving Ludwig with his maternal grandmother. She was a devoted pietist Lutheran. Pietists were Protestants, most numerous in Germany, Switzerland, Scandinavia, and the Baltic lands, who became known for their evangelical fervor personal piety, and intense emotive conversion experiences. Initially, pietists were Lutherans, but as the movement grew, they absorbed influence from other sects and became much less Lutheran. Zinzendorf's biographers recount a pitifully sad scene of Ludwig being heartbroken when he had to part with his mother. It's sad. He tried courageously to keep his composure, but tears rolled down his cheeks. By all accounts, he was a very sweet child. Little Ludwig's close relationship with his grandmother influenced his piety from a young age. As a child, Zinzendorf wrote moving letters to Jesus and completed his devotional practice by scattering his letters into the wind from the top of the castle tower. Because he was like, here, God, take my letters. It's very sweet. Oh, God. 
1706, Swedish soldiers occupied his family's castle as part of the Great Northern War. They barged into his room where he was writing his letters to Jesus, and the soldiers purportedly became emotional when they encountered this sweet scene. They refused to ransack the castle, as they normally did, for fear that God watched over it. Ludwig went on to be educated at Frank Foundations in Hall, a pietist secondary school. As a teen, he studied law at the University of Wittenberg, then traveled around the Netherlands and France. While in a Dusseldorf art gallery, he viewed the painting Behold the Man in English by Domenico Fetti. At that moment, he experienced the Holy Spirit and told himself, I have loved him for a long time, but I have never actually done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. I love that you have this stilted German sort of accent without actually having a German accent. His family had always urged him to become a diplomat. That's kind of what he'd been training for. And the Frank Foundations wanted him to join their faculty. Instead, ever the homebody and grandma's boy, he married in 1722 and bought his grandmother's estate, it was called Bethelsdorf, from her. He settled down there with his bride. His bride has a pretty fun name. I'm pretty excited to say it. Erdmuth Dorothea of Rus Ebersdorf. That same year, he extended asylum to persecuted wanderers. That's he called them wanderers from the parts of Moravia and Bohemia with high concentrations of brethren. Remember them? Brethren? Yes, these wanderers were, as it turns out, the hidden seed. Zinzendorf allowed them to build a village on the corner of his estate. They called it Hernhut. Meanwhile, Zinzendorf accepted a court commission to Dresden. Over the next five years, Hernhut was constructed, and it quickly attracted a growing reputation for religious tolerance. It attracted a smorgasbord of persecuted religious groups. They quickly began to disagree, and waves of apocalyptic fanaticism plagued the village. As, you know, as one does. As they do. As they do. Zinzendorf resigned from Dresden and returned to mediate the conflict. His solution was for the entire village to devote themselves to intense study of scripture. As a community, Hernhut drafted a document called the Brotherly Agreement, to which Zinzendorf appended a number of manorial injunctions meant to keep peace on the estate. Everyone in the community signed the document and continued their intense study of scripture in small prayer groups. This intensive period of mediation has become known as the Moravian Pentecost, and for contemporary Moravians, it marks the birth of the modern Moravian church. Entirely by happenstance, the brotherly agreement was theologically aligned with the unity of Czech brethren. Zinzendorf only discovered the similarities when he began studying the Brethren in 1727, after Herrenhut had already been established and the Brotherly Agreement signed. Zinzendorf urged the villagers to read the writings of the Brethren. And remember, now these are 250 years old, these writings. Not only did the Brethren's theology align with their own, but this was, for many of them, the first time they learned about the trials and tribulations of their ancestors and the roots of the diasporic lives they had always known. The villagers began to conceive of themselves as a renewed community of Czech Brethren. And this is when they start to realize that those people who were um, exiled and living kind of underground, that's when they start calling them the hidden seed. 
mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that seed has now been planted by Zinzendorf, and now they are a religion. From this point forward, the sect used Moravians, Unitas Fratrum, Unity of the Czech Brethren, Unity of the Bohemian Brethren, and a few other names, interchangeably. But for clarity's sake, we'll start referring to them as Moravians from here on out. Most radical Moravian theology and practice was developed immediately following this rebirth in 1727. For the next 15 years, the Moravians expanded rapidly, attracted thousands of followers, and experimented with alternative ways of living, new modes of piety, and novel conceptions of Protestant theology. Now, we're already more than 25 minutes into the episode, and only now has the Moravian Church been established. So, as you can imagine, the history is incredibly complicated, and it's not going to be possible for us to cover the rest of Moravian history in any detail in just one episode. But there are several elements of the Moravian Church that deserve some exploration by us. At the heart of Moravian theology, which is kind of like the ideology that they sort of set down that they believe, lay the idea that religion was a matter for the heart and that over-rationalizing religious thought was a mistake. Zinzendorf strove to achieve the childlike faith that had shaped his boyhood and encouraged Moravians to do the same. The basis for Moravian piety, which is kind of more like the, the practice that they're, that they're um, doing, Uh, This was similar to the pietism of Zinzendorf's grandmother, um, was initially an intimate emotional relationship with Jesus Christ. Over time, this relationship became increasingly erotic and somatic. So somatic, it's really the best word to use for it, but it kind of just means embodied or like having to do with the body. Um, So it became much more erotic and somatic in nature and became what some call a mystical marriage. So kind of like a marital relationship with Jesus Christ. According to historian Aaron Spencer Fogelman, so Fogelman is one of the kind of main historians who works on Moravianism, and he's actually very controversial, which I'll mention later. The intensity of their intimacy with Christ posed a significant problem for early Moravians. If Christ was a man, were Moravian men supposed to have a homosexual relationship with Christ? Well, there's some evidence that Moravians practiced ritual homosexual sex. On the birthday of Zinzendorf's son Christian, his uncles wrote and presumably performed a hymn that exhorted Christ to kiss Christian, quote, so very extraordinarily, and to, quote, take him to the cabinet, which is a special chamber where married couples had mystical sex, um, where they could talk, caress, and kiss each other inspired by the flame of love, end quote. Sounds pretty erotic to me, just saying. Young men in Hernhog, one of the most radical Moravian communities to be established, were known to perform ritual homosexuality. Fogelman says they, quote, penetrated the side wound anus of Christ in spiritual ceremonies. Zinzendorf himself wrote of his relationship with Christ as if they were romantic partners. He said, therefore, by faith, we must so enter the Savior that we can no longer see or hear anything else above or beyond him, that we and he remain inseparably together. He knows my danger and my security. In short, I can be nowhere better than in his arms. For these reasons, other Protestants often called Moravians Sodomites. 
Conscious of the damage that this did to their evangelical mission, Moravians sought to modify their theology so that homosexuality was not a problem. They did so by arguing that all souls were female. And this mystical marriage to Christ was spiritual only, not physical. Likewise, they regendered the Holy Spirit as feminine, ascribing to it a motherly function. If God was the Father, the Holy Spirit was the mother. And Jesus was the Son. You know. Makes sense. Right. They thought that Christ was born male, remained male for his earthly life, and became female at the time of his crucifixion. This is one reason why they place special importance on Christ's side wound. For those of you whose Christian narratives are rusty, remember Christ was crucified by the Romans and in order to ensure he was dead, a Roman soldier was ordered to pierce him between the ribs with a spear. It was through this final wound, the piercing, that Christ performed atonement on behalf of humanity and, according to the Moravians, became female and, quote, gave birth to human salvation. Moravians, as did Pietists, sought to cultivate boundless empathy for Christ's suffering, so they spent the majority of their devotional time contemplating Christ's wounds. His, quote, side hole, um, as they called it, was not only Christ's final wound, but also a figurative womb from which he birthed a path to salvation. This wound birth analogy was incredibly important to Moravian piety. In his writing, Zinzendorf used the analogy often. For example, this is something that he wrote, quote, If one says, I believe it, now I will see whether you are a divine child, that I will see in your longing for your mother's womb, in whether you have entered into the new world through the right door, through which the pleroma of the new spirit exited, namely through the side of Jesus, end quote. To be sure, the analogy works well, especially if you know what pleroma means. But the Moravians' feminization of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ angered other Protestants and caused their enemies to label them heretics and filthy blasphemers. Some historians have uncovered instances of gender transformation during Moravian devotional practice. In 1748, a small cult of devotees formed around Zinzendorf's son, Christian. One of these devotees, Johann Christopher Becker, wrote the following in his diary about his experience with the other boys in his choir. He said, A few days earlier, the brothers in Hernhog, with astonishing feeling, were all accepted and declared as single sisters. And we experienced this astonishing thing ourselves this evening, and were blessed by the dear Herzl, with Christian, Rebouche, and Cahiers singing and laying on hands. There was also communion and foot washing. So the reason that, that we know that this is kind of an instance of gender transformation is because... Um, in their communities, Moravians were kept separate. So boys were only around boys and and girls were only around girls, women only around single women, married women only around married women. They they had these kind of separate groups. And so he's saying that they all were accepted and declared as sisters, Mm. Um, but they're not. They're brothers. Um, So he's talking about a feminization of some sort. Hmm. The Moravians remained increasingly committed to wound piety. In 1744, they composed the Litany of Wounds. They worshipped the five wounds of Jesus, so the first one being his circumcision wound, the second being his nailed feet um, during the crucifixion, uh, the third his nailed hands, fourth the wound made by the crown of thorns, and most importantly, 
the fifth wound, which is the gash made in his side by Roman soldiers to ensure his death on the cross. They call this last wound Jesus' side hole, as you might have gathered. During the 1740s, Moravians wrote side hole hymns, created side hole devotional cards, crafted side hole art, and centered their spiritual practice entirely on this particular wound. One devotee, a Swiss-German woman named Marianne von Wattville, painted a side wound collage, which she stitched into a three-dimensional piece of folk art. It shows her kneeling inside Christ's side hole and being sprayed by the blood of Christ. The inscription reads, Oh, I rejoice, I rejoice so much that I have found the sea from the wound where I am a blessed little sinner. I have everything. The Moravian Archive has preserved a couple hundred side hole devotional cards that depict Moravians seeking refuge inside Christ's side hole. So this seeking refuge thing, it you know, to me it's very connected to the the fact that they were they have this long history of being refugees, right? Yeah. Um, there's some debate about these cards. So Fogelman claims that they're purposely drawn to look like a vulva, and yes, they do look like a vulva, um, and that does make sense since they describe the hole as a womb and they use the analogy of birth to describe atonement. But other historians, such as Craig D. Atwood, point out that if the side hole was supposed to evoke a vulva, it would be vertically oriented. But it's not. It's horizontal. Atwood says it's much more likely supposed to represent a mouth or an eye or even just a mandorla, um, which is it's this almond-shaped... Um, image that is used as a nimbus around Christ's head in traditional Christian iconography. So it's kind of an old form of um, Christian iconography that's very medieval and stuff. Um, and we'll put some images up on the blog, but I, I feel like they really look like vulvas. Like, they, they do. Um, yeah, vulvas can be sideways. If a woman is sideways, yeah. Yeah, that's called side sex position. Side sex. It's side whole sex. Side hole sex. Fogelman argues that the cards were used as devotional materials, but also as instructional tools for married couples seeking mystical sexual encounters. One of them does depict male ejaculation as a figurative blessing of the womb and instructs the ejaculating male to read aloud a hymn at the moment of climax. Craig Atwood, on the other hand, claims that side hole cards were distributed to children on holidays and that in some cases, teen boys use them to help subvert lustful impulses. Abbott also describes a devotional practice in the Moravian community of Hernhog that a youth leader wrote about in his diary. They put some names in a hat, and then the boys each drew out a sacred character that they would have to play act. One drew a wounds worm, another drew a dove, and another a sheep. They then drew a card from a collection of cards depicting Christ's wounds. Christel Zinzendorf, who's Count Zinzendorf's son, drew the circumcision wound. The other boys drew the, si drew the side wound, hands, and, and feet. They then composed hymns based on this devotional lottery. In defense of Fogelman's sensational claims, the side hole cards do look incredibly vulvar, and they bear what looks to be semi-erotic inscriptions. So here are a few examples of side hole card inscriptions. So here's one. 
In the little side hole, I lie just right and sleep a couple of million fathoms deep. Right, that's one. The next one is, the moment the stab occurred, I leapt out. Hallelujah. <laughs> Which seems like, just like, my parents had sex. And then I, here I was. Hallelujah. Like, doesn't it kind of seem like that? <laughs> I just can't stop thinking of it that way. Um, and then here's another one. Deep inside, deep inside, deep inside the little side. Right? That's another one of the inscriptions. And the last one I'll give you as an example is one that just said, trembling inside the wound. And it's like a picture of the person trembling inside of the side wound. One card shows two little side holes at the altar. And the inscription reads, little side holes marrying. Another shows a man with a side hole as a head standing inside of a side hole. Some of the cards include other images common to Moravian imagery, such as the one with the inscription, In the crevice of the side puncture, I sit like a little dove. Moravians often describe themselves as little worms who swam and bathed in the blood of Jesus. Funny enough, some of the cards depict Moravians living their everyday lives. One reads, In the little hole I go for a walk. Even today, at the historic Brothers' house in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, there is a sundial that reads Gloria Plure, which in English is Honor to the Side. <laughs> honor to the Side. Side hole cards leave room for interpretation, definitely. But Moravian hymns about the side hole are unmistakably erotic. So I have a couple for you. So this is hymn 2281, okay? Little side hole, little side hole, little side hole, thou art mine. Most dear little side hole, I wish myself entirely inside. Ah, my little side hole, thou art my little soul. Yes, the dearest little place, side shrine, body and soul passes into thee. Doesn't even rhyme. <laughs> very disappointing it, it was originally in german oh All, right, right. everything is translated oh, from yeah, german okay, okay. Sorry, sorry, so sorry, i sorry. think some of the poetic aspect is lost the license is lost mm -hmm. in writing moravians referred affectionately to the wound as heart pierced deep or a precious cavity or, or my favorite dearest sweetest most beloved side hole Many of the hymns have graphic names. Are you washed in blood? And oh, sacred head sore wounded. Critics mercilessly mocked Moravian wound devotion. The Prussian Heinrich Rimius wrote of Moravian's obsession with the side hole, quote, there is his country, his house, his hall, his little bed, his little table. There he eats, there he drinks, there he lives, there he praises the dear little lamb. Right, so he's being like sarcastic. He's like, this is their country. They just live here in this little side hole. Some hymns contain uncomfortable combinations of erotic overtones and morbid anatomical analogies. So believers swooned over images of Christ's pale lips, dead eyes, and sweat-soaked hair. One hymn describes erotic feelings for Christ's corpse. Quote, man, husband of your church of blood, have knowledge of your people and of every soul in such a human way, so specially alone, O husband with a hole. Oh, what an incomparable ray, kiss us, 
you cold little mouth. O corpse, spread further in this church hall. We are lying here like the child. Kiss us, you cold little mouth. End quote. During their religious festivals, Moravians decorated rooms with images of their brothers and sisters kissing Christ's corpse. They often conceptualized themselves as little cross-air birds or little wound bees who circumvented and entered Christ's side hole. Just as important as Christ's wounds and body was his blood. One image depicts two Moravian sisters touching Christ's wounds and bathing in his blood. Moravians were known to swim in animal blood and to hang bloody sheets from the doors of their church so that Christ's suffering would never be far from their minds. One hymn reads, quote, We in the Lamb's blood community, we intend to witness for eternity that only in the sacrifice of Jesus can be found grace and freedom from all sins for the entire world. Jesus's community rests blessedly. In its friends, it reclines. That is its thing in the sea of grace, swimming and bathing in the blood of Jesus, its element. Blood and wound piety was a mode of worship that brought Moravians closer to the bodily suffering of Christ. So that's the whole point of all of this, is that they're contemplating the horrible suffering of the crucifixion. The faithful composed, read, and meditated on graphic crucifixion narratives that brought them closer to understanding the reality of Christ's suffering. For example, quote, You will have seen our good Jesus out of natural fear tear out the hair of his head. You will have seen his arms flailing, his thighs shaking, all of those milky members chilled to ice and trembling. A hot river of blood courses headlong from all the torn victim's body to his feet. From the flayed Lord, a pure warm lake of blood appears, and blood again in the plummeting lashes, spattering the walls all around, hanging on the rough walls in gross, thick lumps. Radical pietists sometimes join Moravian communities, live there for a while, only to leave and report their experiences to the Moravians' enemies. Most Moravian communities were closed, intentional communities. The most notable radical Moravian community was called Hernhog. These communities were hierarchical, with nobility and clergy at the top. Labor was organized by the general economy, a system of collective ownership. Members did not work for wages, but the church supplied their food, housing, and clothing. Even without wages, Moravians were quite productive. The Pennsylvania and North Carolina Moravians managed to turn their villages into industrial centers. What critics found most shocking was their devaluation of the nuclear family, which was the primary unit of organization for most Protestants. So after the Protestant Reformation, marriage and family kind of became the, the unit, the smallest unit of patriarchy, basically. Uh, Moravians were organized into choirs, depending on their sex and their life stage. There was usually a baby choir, a little boy choir, a little girl choir, single woman choir, single man choir, married woman choir, etc. Each choir had its own leadership and kept its own diary. Um, diary meaning like um, keeping track of their expenses, but also keeping track of like the motions in their meetings, like minutes, meaning minutes. Moravians worked, prayed, ate, and slept alongside their choirs rather than with their nuclear families. Upon death, they were buried in their choirs, chronologically by date of death, in a cemetery called God's Acre, and that's, that's still true today. They were not buried with their families. 
They believe that upon death, they entered the side wound, a process that consummated their mystical marriage with Christ. Critics seized on this theological principle called bridal mysticism and accused the Moravians of Gnosticism. Um, and so Gnostics were early Christian, it was an early Christian mystic cult, and that flourished during the second century CE. Um, and it's kind of one of the things that if someone says something that is heretical or kind of like against um, against orthodox uh, practice that you can call them a Gnostic, and that's kind of like a horrible insult. Earthly marriages were selected by Lot, which was essentially a drawing like the one we mentioned earlier with the Hernhog boys. Moravians believed that this process of lottery was a way of confirming God's desires for them and for their communities. Marriages required consent from both parties, but the initial pairings were made by Lot. Sometimes entire rooms of single men and women would be paired up by Lot and, barring any objections, their marriages were solemnized en masse in a communal ceremony. Mission assignments, special assignments, and travel plans were also selected by Lot. So they kind of left some of the decision-making up to chance, or that's how we would see it. But for them, they would see it as... Up to God. Yeah, up to God. Moravian mothers worked and traveled without their children in tow. Wives and husbands often lived separately in their respective choirs. Their theology valued marital sexuality, however, so Moravian communities required a bedmaster who coordinated married couples' use of a special marital chamber and bed by the hour. Zinzendorf recommended married couples have sex once per week and that they continue to do so after childbearing years were over, which a lot of other Protestant sects had trouble with because they said that sexual pleasure was important within marriage, but for the purpose of conception. So they're saying the more your wife is satisfied, the more you will conceive, right? And if you are having sex after conception is no longer possible, then you're just doing it for the fun of it. And that's what the Moravians said you should do. Though they condemned sex outside of marriage, the Moravians were peculiarly sex-positive in all other ways. Take this hymn, for instance. Remember, this is a hymn for singing in church. Quote, O bring us, our marriage friend, thy blood-speckled member, which is needed for the union with our innocence once again. End quote. Or this one. When I can eat him, so it is best for me. And when my dear husband lets his oil sizzle in me, since this grace is a sacrament, that one cannot always have, my body is turned toward him. Yes, a hymn in church. <laughs> right. It's not like super pornographic exactly, but like imagine saying that in church. Singing it in a hymn. Let's his oil sizzle in me. <laughs> yeah. Like, let that sink in. I mean, let it, yeah. That's, it's a lot, right? But um, <laughs> So, historians have identified a period from 1743 to 1750 that they call the sifting time, when the church's radicalism appeared to spiral out of control. Some historians understand this time as a high point regarding theological and communal innovation, right? They're making all these innovations in their theology. Many people at the time, and some historians now, interpret this time as a crisis. Either way, this is when the Litany of Blood and Wounds was written and published, and when Moravians were most devoted to blood and wounds theology. 
Some communities took wound piety so far in the 1740s that they've been interpreted as wound cults. Interestingly, the zenith of wound piety occurred precisely at the time when Moravians were growing most rapidly and engaging in intensive mission trips all over the world. Some historians believe this is no accident. Wound theology was often compelling to indigenous and African societies that placed ritual importance on blood. Some societies they preached to, on the other hand, had blood taboos that worked against Moravian missionaries' efforts. There is some evidence that Moravians disguised their confessional affiliations during missions and that they toned down the gory blood and wounds piety uh, while they were ministering to foreigners. The Moravians retained a bit of their historical identity as refugees because in the 1730s, Zinzendorf and his inner circle were exiled from Saxony. They turned this instance of persecution into an opportunity to conduct their own Moravian pilgrimage mission. Zinzendorf was often called the Pilgrim Count. Some mission trips involved long-term settlement by Moravian volunteers. Others took the shape of lecture circuits. Moravian missionaries played the role of itinerant preachers. Married couples often went out evangelizing as partners, called wheels. Many ordinary Protestants who encountered missionary wheels were pleased by the charming scene of husband and wife working together in their religious mission. Most Protestant clergy, however, were appalled that they permitted women to preach. This was a hot debate in the American colonies during the First Great Awakening, a transatlantic religious revival during the 18th century. Though most Protestants still objected to female preaching, a host of prophetesses, women mystics, and female preachers managed to participate in the revival, especially in the colonies where ecclesiastical authority struggled to control the peripheries. A century earlier, women who dared to claim religious authority, uh, for example, Anne Hutchinson in Massachusetts Bay Colony, were imprisoned, tried, and exiled. In Hutchinson's case, her exile to New Netherland ended when her family was massacred by the Suwanoi Indians. Moravians, a century later, faced similar dangers when they settled semi-permanently among indigenous communities. Indigenous Americans were rarely violent, but keep in mind that they don't know these people. The Moravians didn't at first speak their language, and the Moravians were attempting to convert them to a religion that practiced blood and wound piety. Um, It would have been easy for indigenous groups to feel threatened, right? Not really understanding what's going on necessarily because there's that language barrier. Historian Jacqueline Van Ghent has argued that Moravian missions, though they were not typically sanctioned by their home country, part of a, quote, wider colonial socialization process. So they're kind of doing the work of empire, even though they're not officially doing the work of empire. What Ghent means is that even though Moravian missionaries sought to save and spread the news of Christ's wounds, they were also using coercion and taking advantage of a power imbalance during an era of extreme imperial violence. In 1752, the Moravians established their mission in Labrador, coastal Newfoundland. After some time there, several of the missionaries were murdered, presumably by the Inuit they had been working with. They abandoned the mission shortly after in 1764. But they didn't stay away for long. The very next year, another Moravian missionary received permission from the Moravian Synod, which made a decision by lot to return with three other missionaries to Labrador. Once they returned, 
to Labrador, the Moravians faced what they considered to be obstinate Inuit who refused to grow new ears. The Moravians assumed that since Wound's piety, emotional pietism, and Christocentric theology was so compelling to them, that it would also be compelling to the Inuit. Some Inuit agreed to worship with them and repeated the words, actions, etc. that they were told to repeat, but they failed to exhibit the emotional behavior that Moravians believed indicated a recreated heart or salvation. They tried for years to coerce the Inuit into changing their emotional style and their behaviors to suit Moravian styles of worship. The Inuit weren't interested, and the Moravians on the mission were sorely disappointed that Inuit culture held such sway over their hearts. Right, which is so strange, because it's like, well, you're going to them. Like, it's not like they are coming to you and refusing to assimilate or something. Even expecting people to assimilate is also stupid and racist, but... They're going to them, and they're upset that the, the Inuit culture is so pervasive. And it's like, you are in f- Newfoundland. Like, what are you expecting? Anyway, we mentioned earlier that Moravian radicalism was quashed in the 1770s and erased from the Moravian record by embarrassed clergy. This is true, but we should quickly recount how this sea change happened. It began much earlier in 1749 at the end of the sifting period. After hearing graphic stories of ritualized homoeroticism and unruly women Moravians, Count Zinzendorf decided that the Moravians were spiraling out of control and endangering their ecumenical goals. So ecumenical means like their evangelical goals. He issued a letter of reprimand to the Moravian communities around the world. He laid out a list of practices and beliefs that the church had developed during the sifting time that corrupted Protestant theology and endangered their mortal souls. Interestingly, the letter was never published in full before 1996, when Craig Atwood translated and published the letter in a Moravian History Society journal. We want to be clear. The things about Moravian piety that appear the most shocking to us now, namely the gory, bloody wound worship, were not at issue. Zinzendorf was on board with that, and that had been a part of Moravian piety since the beginning. One of the things he railed against was the overuse of diminutives. As you'll have noticed, the Moravians called everything little because it reinforced their intimacy with Christ's body. But Zinzendorf came to believe that this trivialized the importance of atonement. He also told people that they needed to stop imitating his phraseology and not use words or phrases they didn't understand because it lacked authenticity. So basically, stop being posers. Right. So, but I mean, they called him Vater and they called his wife Mutter, you know, so they thought of him as like a father. So when he would say something, a lot of times it would turn into a thing. So he would... He would preach or something, and they would pick up on some phrase he used and, like, use it over and over and turn it into, like, part of their canon, you know? Zinzendorf also reprimanded the faithful for what he perceived to be worldly behaviors creeping their way into the church. Some Moravians turned their colonial networks into money-making schemes, while others traded in spiritual eroticism for sexual promiscuity. He particularly singles out the custom of same-sex kissing as a greeting, saying that the kissing is getting out of hand at meetings. He insisted that the sexual lives of congregants must be regulated strictly. No unscheduled illicit sex and no discussions of sexuality or childbirth in any choir but the married choirs. 
He claimed that the single choirs were increasingly engaging in erotic mysticism as a justification in their quest for erotic pleasure. Zinzendorf abolished foot washing, which was a common practice, in a ceremony called the Kiss of Peace until further notice. Historians note these prescriptions are interesting because they only took place in homosocial settings. Historian Paul Puker has written extensively on the incidence of homosexual experimentation that was going on in Moravian communities, in part because of the strict separation of the sexes into choirs. Zinzendorf also warned congregants against using language to describe the side hole, quote, in the manner that our enemies describe it, that is, as a vulva. He recommends they set aside the side wound worship for a set amount of time so the vitriol of their enemies would be rendered unjustified. Lastly, Zinzendorf attacked what he saw as dangerous and unnecessary factionalism among various Moravian congregations. So even though this marks the beginning of the Moravians' period of self-evaluation, Zinzendorf's objections were not to the things that seem most objectionable to us today, like the litany of wounds in general or the strict communal living. In fact, he reinforced those things, and they continued to be central aspects of Moravian life for a couple more decades. Uh, with the side hole thing, for example, he just wanted people to, to stop talking about the side hole in a way that sounded like they were talking about a vagina, basically, right? He didn't want them to stop worshipping the side hole or anything like that. As it turns out, it was Zinzendorf's eclectic and unconventional theology and what they did with this theology that made the Moravians so incredibly radical at this time. When Zinzendorf died in 1760, his successors in the general economy swiftly transformed the church into a more conventional, conservative, evangelical denomination, closely resembling the church today. When historians attempted to study the sifting time, a period of radicalization referred to in bits and pieces by others, they found that in the 1770s, church leaders had burned and discarded any record they could find describing the sifting time experiments. They also disempowered Moravian sisters. Subsequent synods removed women from the board of elders and installed male superintendents to handle the finances of the female choirs, who had always managed their own labor and finances in the past. Women were forbidden from holding office and teaching. The practice of making decisions by the lot continued until it lost favor after 1818 and was abolished in 1889. The Litany of Wounds was also abolished in the 19th century, and with it went the worship of the side hole and the erotic feelings towards Jesus' corpse. Today, the Moravian Church has 750,000 members worldwide. The contemporary Moravian Church bears little resemblance to the Church of the Sifting Time, yes, but there are still some time-honored traditions that survived the Church's many reforms. So, they still practice a love feast, which is one of their main feasts that they actually started in 1727, Hernhut. Missionary work is still central to the faith, and the Moravians boast of the oldest continually used devotional text in the world, and this is called the Daily Watchword, and that was first published in 1728 in Herrenhut. So even though we've given you plenty of juicy tidbits to think about, there was likely so much more that is simply lost to us now, and that makes me quite sad, because they're a pretty fascinating group, and perhaps even more fascinating than we know, but... Because of the humiliation by their peers, um, they kind of conform to society's expectations. 
You know, I think um, something I noticed when I was doing research for this is that, and something that other people don't understand and might think is boring, is the historiography, which is like how all the different historians think about it. Mm-hmm. And that's the hardest part because I wanted to make an interesting episode, but I also didn't want to sensationalize to the point where it's not even like uh, it's not even um, faithful to the people at the time, and it's just sort of like putting words in their mouth mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but I think that we have enough of their, uh, own words, like in their hymns, that we can say that they, they definitely had some sort of romantic, uh, relationship with, with Christ, you know, in their whole heads or, I mean, you know, they're, they're obviously like, they're not physically doing anything with Christ's body exactly, but they're kind of imagining it and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think that they're is enough to say that and that they were very um kind of obsessed with cultivating this intimacy with Christ and it's all kind of just coming from that point of emotion like we just want to feel this emotion and empathize with Christ and their ability their kind their empathy skills because I think now we're realizing that empathy is in some way a skill their empathy skills were highly honed, and that's why they did so well uh, on their missions because they were very good at understanding another point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Inuit case, they they didn't do very well with that, but for the most part, they, they did very well with that, and that's why people like them so much. So that's kind of interesting. But, yeah, I guess um, the main thing I think I would want people to go away with is – that you know historians just don't agree we don't really know what it's hard to just give a narrative because there like isn't an accepted narrative there isn't a dominant narrative right now this is something that's very much being debated because people are just finding new documentation and new ways of talking about it because of that mass destruction right so um I think that that is something that comes out in this episode is that history is so like living and changing because who knows, maybe like 10 years from now, uh, if if I revisited the, the topic, the historiography would be totally different. And they would say, remember when those crazy Freudian idiots used to think that that Moravians were super into sex and stuff, but they weren't? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it's So that's one of the things is people saying that they're projecting Freud back onto um, the Moravians. But I think there's some middle ground that people can probably agree on. Yeah. My question now is, this is the episode that's leading off our Radical Religion series, so the way I interpret Radical Religions is religions that shake up the established order. So what are some of the ways that the Moravian shook up the established order, both in their like hidden seed founding in the 1400s and then when they became a real religion in the 1700s? Right, so they... One of the ways is that their communal way of living w- went against the sort of mm. patriarchal, hierarchical framework that most people lived by. Yeah. They also didn't live in nuclear families, which at this time was becoming the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also uh, recommended recreational sex, mm. which is not normal. And uh, they also didn't shy away from male-on-male uh, intimacy, even sexual intimacy, um, especially as part of ritual, which, mm-hmm. you know, was controversial. Um, yeah. And one of the main things is that because they were missionaries who were so well-loved, 
they, a lot of times, um, they did this in Suriname, for example, in the Caribbean, they befriended and missionized with enslaved Africans Mm -hmm. and became very close with them. And uh, as one historian puts it, they inspired each other because they're talking about this communal way of living. um, And at the same time, these enslaved Africans are kind of um, coming to this political consciousness, this new political consciousness that, hey, like, this isn't how life is not supposed to be, and we're actually, we actually have some power here, and, um, you know, eventually at the end of the, eight, the 18th century, we have the Haitian Revolution that kind right. of proves that they could do that. So they were in many ways subversive, but because they, their missions were not sanctioned, like they weren't sent by governments. They they just volunteered to do this, and Count yeah. Zinzendorf just paid for them to do it. They weren't considered, like, official volunteers. Like, they didn't register with, like, the home office in Germany or whatever. They didn't right. have... So, um, because of that, I think their political radicalism is kind of overlooked. Mm. Um, but I think they still were politically radical um, ever since the Hussite Wars. And, yeah. you know, um, these are refugees who kind of fought for Czech independence hundreds of years before it actually happened. Um, And they still had a lot of those radical uh, political beliefs that were sort of semi-socialist, really. Um, And when they interacted with indigenous people and enslaved Africans, those people took some of that ideology from them. Yeah, but at the same time, also, when they encountered all the horrible things that happened to enslaved Africans in Suriname, mm-hmm. um, they started realizing um, how problematic uh, inequity really was. Yeah. You know, so they kind of taught each other a lot of things. Um, that's something I wish I could have gotten into more in the episode, but that would be, I mean, an episode could be written about every single mission. and Maybe another episode about one of those missions. Yeah, the Suriname one is probably the best because people yeah. started getting pretty upset. Um, so yeah. In the future. Well, until Oh, and I should also add, in the 1770s, when they burned all those things and took women's rights away in the Moravian Church, they also befriended the white planter class and no longer missionized to enslaved Africans. Hmm. Oh, unradical. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of changes, right? Yeah. And it's strange how all that comes together. Misogyny and racism somehow oh, <laughs> intertwined. What? That's not true. <laughs> cool. This was interesting and weird. Um, yeah, blood, wounds. Sex. Penises, bloody wieners. Oh, baldness. one other thing. When they first decided to go on their American mission in like 1740. Oh, also keep in mind, all these missions are happening less than 10 years after they formed as a church. So they're brand new. Yeah. They cool. said... They said, brothers and sisters, are you ready to dip America in blood? That is literally what they called it. Dipping and plunging, I guess. Is... Dip America in blood. Just a little dip. In Christ's blood. So they came over and they dipped Americans in blood. Just, just the tip. Just yeah. Just... <laughs> Ew. Ew. Okay, gross. All right, that's All right. the end now. Bye. Thanks for enjoying our episode if you're still here <laughs> if you have questions comments or ideas for a future episode you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org you can find the transcript and the show notes bibliography for this episode including all these uh great historians that marissa has been referencing throughout the episode at digpodcast.org um 
Yep. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can join our Dig Pod Squad. Dig History Pod, pod Squad. Dig History Pod Squad on Facebook, which is a very exclusive. We only accept everyone who applies. <laughs> and we post very few memes. Very Just few memes. Just... All serious history business all the time. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. I know. Gross. Stop having boogers? <laughs> Get sprayed with blood. Alright, stop talking. <laughs> Etchy homo. Behold the man in English. No, it's just behold the man in English. Oh. <laughs> behold the She'd be super into it. She'd, she'd share Jesus's toothbrush for sure. It's very normal. That's how many people think that like nuns consider themselves married. To the bride of Christ. Yeah. So he's like, aroma. I'm not sure. It's probably a hole. Don't you think? What is it? Hey Siri, what's a pleroma? The pr- plural Roma. The plural Roma. <laughs> You're useless, Siri. Convened at Synod in 14. 14- Convened a synod. It's not synod. It's definitely not synod. Thank you, Christians. Erdmuth Dorothea of Roos Ebersdorf. <laughs> it just doesn't even sound like words anymore. It just, I don't even. So, um, yeah, herb, derb, derb. I was hoping they could talk louder. Jesus. Hern um. Hut was. You people are getting pissed at you. Just say it. That is how you say it normally. Hern Hut. Zinzendorf's biographers. Biographers. Okay. Zinzendorf's biographers. Oh my god, what the I love the, I have everything, and she's just being sprayed by blood. <laughs> like, what the fuck? I know. What the fuck? Young man in Hernhog. What the fuck? I'm dying. <laughs> I told you it was pretty crazy. I'm like, my eyes are watering. No, I'm sorry. I'm so hard not to laugh. <laughs> What the fuck is happening? <laughs> Enjoy the students. You're giving this to your students? Yeah. Oh my god. When they learn about the Protestant Reformation. Makes sense. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.